Paranorm podcast contains content that might not be suitable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Paranorm Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Paranorm, the podcast where we chat all things true crime and paranormal. I'm Emily. I'm Sierra. And this week we are talking a case that neither Sierra or other roomie, Chloe, had had ever heard of. Or, as we just found out literally not even 45 minutes to an hour ago, that our friend Emily had never heard of. Yeah. And to say that I was shooketh is an understatement. Mm -hmm. Hold the fuck up. Is that a bug on our goddamn ceiling? Probably, yeah. Oh my god, we gotta murder it. I can't murder it up there. Okay, I'm keeping an eye on it. Alright, anyway. So, and that is the case of D.B. Cooper. Um, so, I just, honestly. <laughs> honestly. So, uh, I have been hearing about the disappointment <laughs> since we watched Loki and learned about who he was. And... We didn't learn about who he was. No, but we watched Loki. Oh, yes, we did watch Loki. And um, I just got to say, like, are you are you annoyed? Um, <laughs> if I, that I, means yes. Anyone new to the podcast, <laughs> that means yes. That is a Sierra answer, as I like to call, <laughs> when she likes to be indecisive, but she truly means, yes, I hate it. Um, <laughs> as of our new baker's rack that I just got and painted uh, the, the cutting board section green, she goes, um, that means I fucking hate it, Emily. So... I mean, she, she doesn't a strong emotion, and I don't have strong emotions, so... That, that she says publicly. She, deep down, writes a list of all the reasons why she eventually murders me, um, and the cutting board has jumped to number six, I believe. So, uh... You've been looking at my list. <laughs> <laughs> so, D.B. Cooper has moved up to, I believe, number three at this point. <laughs> um, to suffice to say, I have been talking about it non-stop um i feel like it has uh attached itself as one of my ocd components mm-hmm. um i mean obsessive compulsive disorder it's in the fucking name but after today i can officially say that i definitely will know you will who he is i will have educated you on one of the top uh talked about true crime cases you will have talked been about by who because I have never heard of it before. I don't understand how you've never heard of it. Literally all four of my parents have heard of it. You know why I haven't heard of it? Why? Because you haven't told me about it. <laughs> Damn. Um, You're slacking? I'm slacking, and apparently. And I need you to pick it up. Okay, well, I thought... <laughs> I this is, this is me assuming. This is me making an ass out of me and you. Way to go. Because you had heard about John Benet Ramsey. Mm. You would have heard about fucking D.B. Cooper. Cooper. So, I don't know. We got some other cases to go over, apparently. All right. Anyway, (laughs) how the fuck are we, except for the fact I have annoyed you to no end for the last (laughs) 10 days about this shit? Oh, I'm doing good. You are? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah. Okay. We um, we were talking to you guys from the way past. 
we uh, are just getting back from vacation. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm putting positive thoughts and words out there that we had a wonderful vacation. Mm-hmm. You would have loved your birthday present that I got you. Your very practical like, birthday present, guys. <laughs> your very practical ver- birthday present. And I already know it's not forty five hundred pairs of socks. So, oh, yeah, Sierra does not need any more socks. Sierra has too many pairs of socks. And she doesn't even wear fuzzy socks, which I haven't quite comprehended yet. Um, because I love fuzzy socks. Like, I think the fuzzy socks that I have have no structure. Mm. And they just, like, spin around your foot. Mm, and that's yeah. really annoying. Okay. Okay. I get that. I feel you. I feel you on that. Um, I, however, love all fuzzy socks. Um, so I have, I have no qualms about the fuzzy socks, uh, but no, your birthday present is not 4,500 pairs of, uh, socks, let alone fuzzy socks. Mm -hmm. It is something very practical that I am hoping you like. I have gotten it shipped to my grandmother's cabin. Um, so we shall see how that Mm -hmm. pans out. Okay. Okay. I'm also planning some practical gifts for you. I'm very nervous. Um, I don't like surprises in case we ha- have, we talked about that? Yeah. I'm okay. sure we yeah. have. I don't, I don't love surprises. Um, and you know, I'm terrible at giving surprises. You are. Sierra gave me my, uh, Christmas present four months in advance. <laughs> um, so. Cause like I get stuff for people and like, I just want to give it to them right away. Yeah. And so like planning out Christmas presents is not a good idea for me because then I'm like, well, I, I have it like. If I have it, I have to get rid of it. Like Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm like, why wouldn't you want to have it already? I like, feel like, okay, so I want to give it to you, but, like, I also already ordered it, so I can't give it to you mm-hmm. at the moment because it's getting shipped to my grandmother's cabin. Yeah. Um, but, however, everybody around us knows what your present is except for you because <laughs> I cannot keep a goddamn secret. Um, unless it's, like, really important. I yeah. can probably keep it if it's really important, but, like, present. Mm. A present. So, um, what is it? The secrets we keep from others. Uh, oh, guys. Okay. So we listen to this podcast called Family Secrets. Yeah. And it's hosted by Danny Shapiro. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's what her name is. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what her her name is. So it's the secrets we keep from our uh, from others. The keepers is the secrets others keep from us, and then the secrets we keep from ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you guys have not listened to that podcast, I highly recommend it. It is so fucking juicy. Mm-hmm. You guys know I'm fucking nosy. We've <laughs> talked about that. I know that for sure. Um, it is, it is really good. I'm not sponsored. Hashtag not sponsored, but I am obsessed with that fucking podcast. (laughs) Like anytime Sierra and I go on a long drive and Mm -hmm. I know Sierra is getting tired, I put that shit on because I'm like, Sierra, yeah, we got to find out what these people's secret is. Yeah. Um, I fucking love it. I think I love it so much. One, because, um, I'm nosy as hell. Mm -hmm. Two, because I am myself a family secret. Like Mm -hmm. people, um, I'm adopted. I've said that's before. Um, people in my, uh, birth mother's family do not know that I exist. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just, I find it really fascinating and how people deal with that. Yeah. Um, because I'm in therapy because of it. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, it's just really, really fascinating Mm -hmm. to me on how you can keep a a secret like that, um, for so long, like the, who your, uh, heritage is, Mm -hmm. is just really really mind-boggling like um how how do you hide something like that I feel like it's the question that Mm. I have um and how do you feel after hiding something like that is another question that I get a lot 
Uh, but anyway, so enough about that. Um, yeah, that's a whole nother. A whole nother thing. Yeah. Uh, a different podcast episode. So, on to this madness. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah. Why are you laughing? Is that a pun? <laughs> what? Is that a pun? Is that a pun? Yeah. On to this madness. No. A lucky pun. Oh. We're going to say it is. <laughs> We're going to go with that being a pun. You guys just forget everything I just said. It was a pun. <laughs> okay. On Thanksgiving Eve, which I did not know was the term, um, November 24th, 1971, a middle-aged man carrying a black attache case approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. Um, he identified himself as, quote, Dan Cooper. Okay. Um, and used cash to purchase a one-way ticket on flight 305, a 30-minute trip to North Seattle. Cooper boarded the aircraft, a Boeing 727-100. Um, he took a seat, 18C was his seat, 18E by one account and 15D by another, um, but like, we okay. it has been confirmed it was 18c oh okay um so he then Sorry. O- no no worries he then ordered a drink bourbon and soda mm-hmm. eyewitnesses described him as a man in his mid-40s wearing a business suit with a black tie and a white shirt flight 305 approximately one-third full departed portland on schedule at 2 50 p.m uh, Pacific Standard Time. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to Florence Schaffner, the flight attendant. Uh, she was like closest to him. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, do, 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 do. Schaffner assumed the note contained a lonely businessman's phone number, dropped it unopened into her purse. Cooper leaned toward her and whispered, quote, Miss, you'd better look at that note. I have a bomb. Mm-hmm. Uh, the note was printed in neat, all capital letters with a felt tip, like written with a felt tip pen. Mm-hmm. It was, um, sorry, hold on. Its exact wording is unknown because Cooper later reclaimed it, mm-hmm. but Schaffner recalled that it mentioned the bomb and it directed her to sit on the seat beside Cooper. Schaffner did as requested and then quietly asked to see the bomb. Cooper, Cooper opened his briefcase long enough for her to, like, glimpse at it mm-hmm. and see, like, red cylinders, four on top of four, attached to wires coated with red insulation um, and, like, a large cylindrical battery. After closing the briefcase, he stated the demands, $200,000 in negotiable American currency, uh, four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the aircraft upon arrival. Um, so Schaffner conveyed Cooper's instructions to the pilots in the cockpit. When she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses. So beforehand, mm-hmm. she could see his full face. Yeah. Uh, the captain, William A. Scott, contacted Seattle-Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control, which informed local and federal authorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 35 other passengers were told that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a, quote, minor mechanical difficulty. Mm. Uh, Northwest Orient's president, Donald Nyrope, authorized the payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with the hijackers' demands, which is is now, like, now we don't negotiate with terrorists. Right. That is a rule. Yeah. It's it's not a thing. Um, So the aircraft circled uh, Puget Sound. Is that how you say that? I think so. Puget Sound? 
fun. I don't know. Okay, the aircraft circled Puget Sound for approximately two hours to Seattle. Um, I'm sorry, two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI sufficient time to assemble Cooper's parachutes and the ransom money and to mobilize emergency personnel. Uh, flight attendant Tina McLeod recalled that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain and at one point remarked, looks like, oh, sorry, remarked, quote, looks like Tacoma down there as the aircraft flew above it. He also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only about a 20-minute drive um, from Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Schaffner described him as, like, calm, polite, well-spoken, not at all consistent with the stereotypes of, like, enraged, hardened criminals or, like, take-me-to-Cuba political descendants. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, the things that are popularly associated with air piracy at the time, mm-hmm. um, quote, he wasn't nervous. McLeod told investigators he seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all of the time, which I feel like freaks me out more. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so he ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid his drink tab and attempted to give McLeod the change and offered to request meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. Like, what? Yeah. So, FBI um, agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle-area banks, uh, $10,000 in unmarked $20 bills, with most of the serial numbers beginning with the letter letter L, indicating issuance by the Federal Reserve, Bank of San Francisco, and most of the 1963A or 1969 series. Um, So, like, noticeable... Oh, my God, it's flying. It flew. Did you see that? No. Okay. Like, noticeable bills, okay. you know? Um, and they were each photographed. Mm-hmm. So, again, yeah, they were marked. Cooper rejected the military-issued parachutes offered by McCord AFB personnel, instead demanding sil- uh, hmm, civilian parachutes with manually operated rip cords. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seattle police obtained them from a local skydiving school at 5.24 p.m. Pacific t- Standard Time. Cooper was informed that his demands had been met, and at 5.39 p.m., more than half an hour after sunset, the aircraft landed at Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Cooper instructed Scott to taxi the jet in like an isolated, brightly lit section of the, the runway, mm-hmm. close all windows um, in the cabin to deter like snipers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Northwest Orient Seattle Operations Manager Al Lee approached the aircraft in street clothes to avoid the possibility that Cooper might mistake his airline uniform for that of a police officer. Um, and delivered the cash-filled knapsack and parachutes to McLeod via um, the the stairs. stairs. Mm -hmm. Um, Once the delivery was completed, Cooper allowed all passengers, Schaffner, and a senior flight attendant, Alice Hancock, to leave the plane. Mm -hmm. Um, So during refueling, Cooper outlined his flight plan to the cockpit crew, a southwest course towards Mexico City at a minimum airspeed possible, like, without stalling the aircraft, mm-hmm. uh, approximately 100 knots, um, at maximum 10,000 feet, uh, like, 
mm-hmm. altitude. Uh, he further specified that landing gear remained deployed in the takeoff landing position and wing flaps be lowered to 15 degrees and the cabin remained unpressurized. So, First Officer William J. Razak uh, informed Cooper that the aircraft's range was limited to approximately 1,000 miles under specified flight configuration, which meant that a second refueling would be necessary before entering Mexico. Um, Cooper and the crew discussed options and agreed on Reno, Nevada as refueling, like, where they were going to stop. Yes. So, Cooper further directed that the aircraft take off the rear exit door, open its staircase, and extend. Now, Northwest Home Office objected on the grounds that it was unsafe to take off with the aircraft's staircase deployed, Mm -hmm. which makes sense. Um, Cooper countered that it was indeed safe, but he would not argue the point. He would lower it once they, like, became airborne. Mm -hmm. Um, And an FFA... Not FFA. That's the that's the organization for school. FFA. F oh god. AA. FAA. There we go, Sierra. Um, official requested a face to face meeting with Cooper aboard the aircraft, which was denied. Uh, the refueling process was delayed because of a vapor lock in the fuel tanker's truck pumping mechanism. So like a second truck had to become mm-hmm. like had to come yes. fuel them. So, at approximately 7.40 p.m., the Boeing 727 took off with only Cooper, the Captain Scott, uh, Flight Attendant McLove, and the First Officer, uh, Redditu- I can't say his name. Okay. Officer R. Okay. And Flight Engineer Harold E. Anderson on board. So, two F-106 fighter aircraft from McCord Air Force Base followed behind the airliner um, one above it and one below it, out of Cooper's view, a Lockhead T-33 trainer diverted from an unrelated Air National Guard mission mm-hmm. also shattered the plane before running low on fuel and turning back near, like, the Oregon-California state line. Mm-hmm. Uh, after takeoff, Cooper told McLeod that, uh, she needed to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and remain there with the door closed. Obviously, she fucking complied because this <laughs> motherfucker, as far as she knows, has a bomb. Um, she observed Cooper trying to, like, tie something to himself, possibly like the money bag around his waist. Uh, and at approximately 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the uh, air stair mm-hmm. thing had been activated. So, right, the air officer. Are. Mm-hmm. Um, offered assistance via the aircraft's like intercom system, which Cooper refused. This was the last communication the crew had with him. The crew soon noticed the subjective change of air pressure, indicating that the door was open. Mm-hmm. And at approximately 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, large enough to require trimming to bring the plane like back to level, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, at approximately 10.15 p.m., Scott and Officer R. landed the 727 with the air um, lock still open. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the door was still open. Um, they landed at Reno Airport. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and Reno police surrounded the fucking jet. 
uh, as it had not been determined, like, with certainty that Cooper was no longer aboard. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like, an armed search quickly confirmed his absence. Yeah. Uh, FBI agents recovered 66 unidentified latent fingerprints aboard the airliner. Uh, the FBI agents also found Cooper's black clip-on tie, his tie clip, and two of the four parachutes. Uh, authorities interviewed the eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno, um, and, like, a series of composite sketches were developed. Mm-hmm. Local police and FBI agents immediately began questioning possible suspects. There was, like, a couple of ones that were, like, immediate, like, let me check out this motherfucker. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to get into them in a minute. Like, okay. Like, the list of all of the suspects, like, all of the major suspects. Okay. Um, but here's just, like, a little, a little, little snippet. Uh, was a, first was, like, an Oregon man that, with, like, a minor police record named D.B. Cooper. Oh, good um, guy. Yeah. Contacted by Portland police on the off chance that the hijacker had used his real name or, like, the same alias in a previous crime. He was quickly ruled out as a suspect, but a local reporter named James Long, rushing to meet an imminent deadline, confused the element suspect's name with a pseudonym used by the hijacker. So that is how DB became Uh, DB. mm -hmm. Because he was just Dan Cooper. Right, okay. And that is why we call him D.B. Cooper. Um, so a wire service reporter, Clyde Jabin, uh, by most like accounts, and uh, Joe Fraser of the AP by others, republished the error, followed by numerous other media sources. The name D.P. Cooper became like lodged in the memory. Yeah. As I just said. It would never just be Dan again. It never. So a precise search of the area was like difficult to define obviously. Yeah. Um, as even small differences in estimates of the aircraft speed or the environmental conditions along with the flight path, which varied by location and altitude, mm-hmm. um, changed Cooper's projected landing uh, point considerably. An important variable was the length of time he remained in free fall before pulling his ripcord. Mm-hmm. Uh, if indeed he succeeded in opening the parachute at all. Right. Uh, so neither the Air Force fighter pilots saw anything in the, like, exiting the airline, mm-hmm. um, either visually or on radar, nor did they see a parachute open, but at night with extremely limited visibility and cloud cover obscuring any ground lighting below, an, airboy, an, an airborne black-clad human figure could have easily gone undetected, which, yeah. Yeah, I get that. So, the T-33 pilots never made visual contact with the 727. Three major pieces of evidence were found on the plane. A black clip-on tie, as I said earlier. Mm -hmm. A mother-of-pearl tie clip and an eight-filter-tipped Raleigh cigarette butts. Um, At some time after the hijacking, the cigarette butts were lost. Okay. Yeah. So, a month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed a list of the ransom serial numbers to financial institutions, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conducted large cash transactions, Mm -hmm. and to law enforcement agencies around the world. So, Northwest Orient offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money to a maximum of $25,000. Mm-hmm. Um... 
In early 1972, U.S. Attorney General John N. Mitchell released a, like the serial numbers to the general public, which I don't know why they didn't do beforehand, honestly. I don't know. Like, shop owners, like, little country yeah. gas stations, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, in 1972, two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed with Cooper's serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter named Carl Fleming in exchange for an interview with a man they falsely claimed was the hijacker. Mm. Isn't that wild? Yeah. So the Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in the ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI-filled office. In Seattle, the post-intelligencer made a similar offer with a $5,000 reward. Wow. Yeah. Uh, The offers remained in effect until Thanksgiving 1974. Again, okay, inflation. With inflation. That's a good chunk of change. Yeah. I'll tell you in a minute, like with, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you in a minute how much money. Okay. With inflation. Um, so, um, in 1975, Northwest Orient's insurer Global Amenity complied with an order from Minnesota Supreme Court and paid the airlines $180,000 claim on the ransom money. So, like, what? what? Yeah. So, like, they made the airline themselves pay. Like, the insurance company made the airline themselves pay it. And then the insurance company got told, hold up, bitch. Yeah. Yeah. What? Yeah. Um, so, they, they had, like, an experiment. Okay. Like, a recreation. Okay. Uh, with Scott piloting the aircraft used in the hijacking in the same flight configuration, FBI agents pushing a 200-pound sled out of the open air stair were able to reproduce the upward motion of the tail section described by the flight cl- crew at 8.13 p.m. There's our ice machine saying, hello, everyone. Um, and it was like the most likely time to jump. Okay. Uh, at the, at that moment, the aircraft was flying through a heavy rainstorm over the Lewis Re- River in southwestern Washington. So, like, it was, variables were happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so, at first, Cooper's landing zone was within, an, like, an area on the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens. Okay. Okay. Uh, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington. So, it was it was like a lake area. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was like an artificial lake where the dam was and everything and on the Lewis River. So, search efforts focused on Clark and Cowlitz counties, encompassing the terrain immediately south and north uh, of the Lewis River. And FBI agents, sheriff deputies from those counties searched large areas of the mountains and the wilderness on foot and by helicopters, door to door, like everything that they Mm -hmm. possibly could. So other search parties ran patrol boats um, on the lake and river and they came up with nothing. Absolutely nothing. Well, yeah. 
The FBI also coordinated, like, aerial searches uh, using the Oregon Army National Guard along the entire flight path. Still nothing. Shortly after the spring thaw in early 1972, teams of FBI agents aided by some 200 Army soldiers. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Along with Air Force personnel and National Guardsmen, so, civilian volunteers conducted, a, like, a thorough ground search of Clark and Cowlitz counties for 18 days, Sierra. Wow. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing. So, a marine salvage firm was brought in, used a submarine to search the 200-foot depths of the lake. Mm. Uh, two local women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County, and it was later determined to be a remains of an unknown woman mm-hmm. uh, who had been abducted and murdered several weeks before. Okay, then. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, ultimately, the search and recovery operation, arguably the most extensive and intensive in U.S. history, uncovered no significant material evidence related to the hijacking. Which, can you imagine how much money... Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and the time, like, of all the volunteers, you know, like, how much time they spent. Yeah. And they found nothing. Nothing. Well, they did find the lady, so there is that. There is that. There is that. So, in November 1978, a placard printed with instructions for lowering the stairs of a 727 was found by a deer hunter, um... Of like east of Castle Rock, Washington, well north of the lake, mm-hmm. uh, but within the flight's like basic path. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was like the first real piece of something, something that they found um, on February tenth, nineteen eighty. So two years later. Uh, eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a, like, beachfront known as Tina or Tena uh, Bar about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington, and about 20 miles southwest of Ariel. He uncovered three packets of ransom cash as he, like, raked the sandy riverbank mm-hmm. uh, to build a campfire. The bills were disintegrated, but were still bundled in rubber bands. FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed a portion of the ransom. Two packets of $120 bills each, and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order as when given to Cooper. Mm-hmm. Uh, the discovery launched several new rounds of the conjecture and ultimately raised more questions than answers, because obviously... Yeah, just... Just that little bit. Yeah. Um, Initial statements by the investigators and scientific consultants were found on the assumptions that the bundled bills washed freely from the Columbia River from one of its many connecting, like... Like creeks or streams or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So an Army Corps engineer hydrologist noted that the bills had disintegrated in a rounded fashion and were matted together, indicating that they had been deposited in, like by river action, as opposed to have been deliberately buried. Oh, okay. Uh, That conclusion, if correct, supported the opinion that Cooper had not landed near Lake Merwin, which is the lake that I was Mm -hmm. speaking of, nor any, like, creek or river flowing into it. Yeah. Um, 
which feeds into Columbia, into the Tina bar. It also let credence to the supplemental speculation that placed the drop zone near the river, which makes sense. Like, the way it flows. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. downstream. Um, so, this, however, this theory, this free-floating hypothesis presented its own difficulties. It did not explain the 10 bills missing from one packet, nor was it the, like, logical reason that the three packets would have remained together after separating from the rest of the money. Mm-hmm. Physical evidence was incompatible with the geological evidence. Uh, they observed that the free-floating bundles would have had to wash up on the bank within a couple of years of hijacking. Otherwise, the rubber bands would have been, like, deteriorated. Mm-hmm. Um, an observation confirmed by, like, an experiment by the Cooper research team because there's a whole Cooper research team at this point. Wow. Yeah. Which, I didn't know rubber bands disintegrated that fast. Yeah, in water. I mean, I know they dry up and, like... They dry up? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. They dry up and then they get brittle and just crack. But I feel like in water they would stay hydrated. Yeah. I don't know. That's wild. Okay, so the more recent analysis of the bills suggests that the bundles found at the Tina Bar were not submerged in the river or buried dry at the time of the hijacking in November, only to suggest that the like there was like a bloom from springtime, mm-hmm. which suggests that they entered the water at least several months after the hijacking. Okay. So alternative theories were like put forward at this point. Obviously. Um, yes. So, some of them suggesting that the money had been found at a distant location by someone, possible like a wild animal, and they carried it to the riverbank and reburied it there. Mm. Uh, The sheriff of Cowlitz County proposed that Cooper accidentally dropped a few bundles on the air stair, like the air staircase thing, um, which then blew off of the aircraft and fell into the Columbia River. Um, one local newspaper editor theorized that Cooper, knowing he could never spend the money, dumped it into the river or buried portions of it at the Tina Bar and possibly, like, elsewhere, mm-hmm. um, himself. However, no hypothesis offered to date, like, that explains it all, you know? Yeah, okay. Like, the different sedimentary... And, like, different pieces of it, but... Yes, yeah, exactly. So, moving on. Okay. To 1986, where uh, protracted negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram and Northwest Orient's insurer. Mm-hmm. The FBI retained 14 examples as evidence. Ingram sold 15 of his bills at auction in 2008 for $37,000. Wow. Yeah. To Talk date, about profit margin. Yes. So, to date, none of the 9,710 remaining bills have turned up anywhere. Mm-hmm. Their serial numbers have remained available online for, like online for public search. So, give or take, now, it would be like $66,000 mm. due to inflation. Okay. 
Okay, so the Columbia River ransom money and the air stair instruction placard remain the only confirmed physical evidence from the hijacking ever found out, like, outside of the aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, excuse me. Um, in late 2007, the FBI announced that a partial DNA profile had been obtained from three organic samples found on Cooper's clip-on tie. Uh, in 2001, though they later acknowledged that there is no evidence that the hijacker was a source of the sample material. So they don't. Yeah, like they don't fucking know. be a person who picked it up later. Yes. Uh, Quote, the tie had two small DNA samples and one large sample. Uh, It's difficult to draw firm conclusions from these samples, uh, said Special Agent Fred Gutt, which is a terrible fucking name. (laughs) Um... The Bureau also made a public file of previously unreleased evidence, including Cooper's 1971 plane ticket. Uh, He paid $20 in cash. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Can you imagine? Uh, And posted previously unreleased composite sketches and, like, fact sheets, along with the request to the general public for information, which might lead to Cooper's, like, positive identification. Mm -hmm. Uh, They disclosed that Cooper had chosen the older of two primary parachutes supplied to him rather than a technically superior professional sport parachute. And that from the two reserve parachutes, he selected a dummy, an unusable unit, which like an, an operative ripcord, mm-hmm. intended for classroom demonstrations. Although it had cleared like marking it, like it was like clearly marked mm-hmm. like a dummy parachute. Yeah. Um, Why would they give it to him? Yeah, uh, that's what I was wondering. Uh, so that's a little interesting thing that she just brought up. But because the FBI stressed that the inclusion of the dummy reserve parachute, one of four that they had, um, was an accident. That seems unlikely. Doesn't it? <laughs> so in March 2009, the FBI disclosed that Tom Kay, a paleontologist from the Burke Museum of Natural History and Culture in Seattle, holy fucking mm-hmm. shit, um, had assembled a team of citizen sleuths, including a science... <laughs> I can't get over that. <laughs> That's like the fucking old couple that solved the Zodiac. Mm. Um, it, like, it just, no, just makes me giggle. Okay, so... They, um, like, included a whole bunch of, like, smart people, like mm-hmm. a scientific illustrator, um, a metallurologist. Uh, the group, eventually known as the Cooper Research Team, reinvestigated important components of the case using GPS, satellite imagery, and other technologies, obviously not able to be, like, around in 1971. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, although they gained a little new information about the buried ransom money or Cooper's landing zone, they were able to find and analyze hundreds of minute particles on Cooper's tie using an electron microscope. Um, so, like, they found these spores, uh, mm-hmm. I, I'm going to butcher this, glycopodium spores, likely from like a pharmaceutical product. Hmm. Um, they were identified as well as like fragments of bismuth and um, aluminum. Mm-hmm. So it's it just like little interesting things like, like that. We know more, but we don't know more. Yeah, yeah. So in November 2011, Kay announced that the particles pure uh, were like pure titanium had also been found on the tie, which mm-hmm. again... Um, he goes on, like, is weird. Like, that combination of stuff is weird to me. 
you know yeah. like what could that possibly be like how how common is pure titanium yes so he explained that the titanium which was much rarer in 1970s than it was in like 2010s mm-hmm. um was at the time found uh i'm sorry was at the time found only in metal fabrication or production facilities or at chemical companies using it like combined with aluminum mm-hmm. which was also found on his tie right uh to store like extremely corrosive substances the findings suggested that cooper might have been a chemist metallurgist um or possible engineer or manager um like you know people that wore a tie yeah, yeah. so Cause, like um, he probably wore that tie other places before he wore it onto that yeah plane. so uh or like at a company that recovered scrap metal from those type of factories mm. so like all good theories but like doesn't actually theories. get you closer yeah so in january 2017 k reported again that rare earth minerals such as cerium and strong strontium i this is why i could never okay. investigate metals um <laughs> he, they found some really weird metals on his tie again y'all yeah um had also been identified from the particles of the tie also this tie is getting around my dude yeah well, um, do you think that people ever get tired of looking at this fucking tie? I'm sure they like, do. Like, they came in and they're like, oh, fucking hell, this <laughs> goddamn tie again. <sighs> Why? Like, two more years just on this. Oh, <laughs> my God. Yeah, because, like, they've been looking at this tie for... Well, almost like, how did you not find... Since 2009. Like, how how do you keep finding new things? I, that's what I want to know. Like, I would feel like at some point in time... Yeah, yeah. There's nothing left besides the tie. Yes. Yeah, so of the rare particles that I cannot mm-hmm. say, um, in the 1970s, Boeing's supersonic transport development project suggesting, like, like it was, like, a part of this, like, super secret project. Okay, which special goes, R&D. Yeah, 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 which goes with, like, the the thought that this was an inside job. Mm. Um, so it's just... Uh, Scorned, like, yeah. employee or something. Yes, so suggesting that he was... a like an employee at Boeing. Uh, Other possible sources of the material included plants that manufactured cathode ray tubes Mm -hmm. um, or, like, uh, just, like, any kind of thing like that. But super scientific, super, like... Yeah, Um, something that Emily Varner is not. Um, (laughs) You're welcome. Uh, This was probably, like, my least favorite part researching this because I'm like, can we fucking get this over with? (laughs) Like, tell me more about the money, okay? <laughs> but, yeah, so I was like, I'm going to have to talk about this, and, like, I'm going to have to say these things, and Sierra's going to roll her eyes at me or sigh. I do not want to say this. I'm like, <laughs> okay, anyway, now that we're over the technical stuff, uh-huh. we are going to talk about the sus- suspects, okay. if All I right. can say that. God. I am okay. I just got back from a doctor's appointment. We paused this because I had a doctor's appointment. Um, so I am like not with it right now. <laughs> um, anyway, so all right, on to the theories. You ready? Yes. None of them were Loki. They didn't know. Okay, for anyone new, um, I am obsessed with Marvel and I have now dragged Sierra um, <laughs> willingly slash unwillingly onto this journey. We'll never know. Um, I consent, but <laughs> could be withdrawn at any time. You didn't know. You didn't know how deep it went, did you? <laughs> you didn't know how deep my Marvel obsession went, did you? How could I? 
<laughs> um, so we've been watching, we watched WandaVision, we watched The Falcon and the Winter Soldier, mm-hmm. aka Captain America and the Winter Soldier, and then um, we are now watching Loki, and in one of the episodes, spoiler alert, he pretends to be D.B. Cooper, which is really funny. Um, did I say this at the beginning of the episode? You may have. Okay. Anyway, so none of them are Loki. Now, as I mentioned before, Cooper appeared to be familiar with Seattle area and may have been an Air Force veteran. Mm -hmm. So based on testimony that he recognized the city of Tacoma from the air as jet, like the jet circled uh, Puget Sound Mm -hmm. and his accurate comment to McLeod that McCord AFB was approximately 20 minutes driving time from Seattle to Tacoma Airport. Um, a detail most civilians would not know or, like, comment upon. Mm-hmm. His financial situation was very likely desperate. Obviously, if you're going to fucking hijack a mm, plane. Maybe. I feel like it would be. Like, why would you hijack a fucking plane for funsies? I, I just don't... I don't know if that was, like, his main motivation or not. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I would just say... Maybe. Maybe. In in my opinion, maybe. Okay. Uh, That's why I said most likely. Mm -hmm. Um, So, according to FBI's retired chief investigator, Ralph Himmelsbach, extortionists and other criminals who steal large amounts of money nearly always do so because they are in urgent need. Otherwise, the crime is not worth the considerable risk, which is my thinking. Like, Mm. why risk it for funsies? Um, I mean, because he didn't really, like, expose anybody because it wasn't, like... Other than, like, their vulnerability. Yeah, yeah. So, alternatively, Cooper may have been, like, a thrill seeker who made the jump just to prove that it could be done, like you said. Mm. So, agents theorized that Cooper took his alias from a popular Belgian comic series in the 1970s featuring a fictional hero, Dan Cooper, who was in the Royal Canadian Air Force, like he was a test pilot, Mm -hmm. um, who took part in like numerous heroic adventures, including parachuting evidence. Um, So like it suggested that Cooper was knowledgeable about like flying technique, Mm -hmm. the aircraft and the the terrain again. So um, when another thing that they think like um, he has like, prior law enforcement military like to kind of knowledge what they would do yeah because he demanded four parachutes to force the assumption that he might compel one or more of the hostages to jump with him thus ensuring he would not be like deliberately supplied with sabotaged equipment Mm. Um, he chose a 72700 aircraft because it was ideal for bailout escape owing not only to its like air stair, but mm-hmm. also to the high afterward placement of all three engines, um, which allowed a reasonably safe jump despite the proximity of, like, the engine exhaust. Yeah. Uh, it had a single point fueling capability and then recent innovation that allowed all tanks to be refueled rapidly through a single fuel port. It also had the ability, which is, this is really unusual for this, like, commercial jet airliner to remain in slow low altitude of flight without stalling Mm -hmm. um which it was it was maintaining about i think it was like ten thousand feet Mm -hmm. um and it was moving kind of slow right you said 100 knots right yeah 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 so it just it was just kind of like right chilling 
Um, so, and Cooper knew how to control the airspeed and the altitude without entering the cockpit where he could have been overpowered by three pilots. Um, in addition, Cooper was familiar with important details such as an appropriate flap setting of 15 degrees, which was, again, mm-hmm. unique to that specific aircraft. Uh, and the typical refueling time, he knew that the air stair could be lowered during flight, a fact that's never disclosed to civilian flight crews, like not not a thing, Um, since there was no situation on a passenger flight that would make that necessary. And that is, um, and that its operation by a single switch in the rear of the cabin could not be overridden from the cockpit, which seems, huh. Interesting. Yeah. Um, He also may have known that the Central Intelligence Agency was at the time using 727s to drop agents and supplies behind enemy lines in the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. So on to the actual people. Now that now that we we have all of that. Uh, The first person who claimed to be Cooper was Jack Coffett. He um, claimed to be him in 1972. A, he was a con man with a long criminal history. Caulfield was confirmed to have had, like, suffered injuries around the time of the hijacking. Mm-hmm. However, the FBI found so many inconsistencies in his story. He said he landed, like, near Mount Hood, about 50 miles southeast of Ariel, injuring himself and losing the ransom money in the process. Uh, photos of Caulfield bear a resemblance to the composite drawings, although he was in his mid-50s in 1971. Mm. It's a little old, you yeah. know? Yeah. He was reportedly in Portland on the day of the hijacking as well uh, and sustained leg injuries at uh, that time, which were consistent with a skydiving miscap, um, so they eliminated him. Mm. However, that did not stop Caulfield from peddling his story to all the major TV networks <laughs> who ultimately refused to give him a platform. Oh, good for them. Which is so fucking rare. <laughs> um, that wouldn't happen these days, though. E- yeah, no, it would not. Uh, so next, we have Kenneth Christensen. He had been a paratrooper and then mechanic and a flight attendant for Northwest, uh, Northwest Orient Airlines the airline Cooper targeted. Mm -hmm. So he also resembled the composite sketch of the hijacker. A few months after the hijacking, he supposedly purchased a house with cash. Um, In 2003, his brother Lyle saw a documentary on Cooper, like on the Cooper Mm -hmm. case, and became convinced that Kenneth, who died in 1994, was D.B. Cooper, which can you fucking believe that? Like... (laughs) Like you never told me. <laughs> yeah, honestly. Um, so the FBI didn't see enough evidence to investigate Kenneth Christensen. So Lyle tried to shop the story to Nora Ephron for a film, which like never happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, it later came out that unknown to Lyle, Kenneth did not pay for like the house, the house in cash. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we have a, another another suspect. Barbara Dayton, who underwent gender reassignment surgery in 1969. Mm -hmm. Um, She transitioned from male to female. Um, So she later explained to her friends that she had pulled off the hijacking by disguising herself as a man and then escaping scrutiny afterward as a woman. Um, Her claims were never, like, investigated seriously. Mm -hmm. And then she passed away in 2002. 
So uh, her friends Pat and Ken, uh, her friends Pat and Ken Foreman published the Legend of DB Cooper: Death by Natural Causes, revealing what Dayton had told them years before. The FBI had never taken Dayton seriously as a suspect. Um, well, they because they probably didn't think a woman could do it. No, they didn't. So they were like, "What? No." Yeah, a transgender woman at that. So. Okay. Um, she would have missed. She could have. Could have. I don't know what her financial state was before she had the reassignment search. Or mm-hmm. you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, to help so, like pay for it. Yeah. That would be reasonable. Yeah. Um, I mean, given the state of our healthcare system. Yeah. That seems well, yeah, like that a was likely, totally. That seems like a likely. Yeah. Option. So next we have um, Dewey Max Cooper and his sister. <laughs> No, I'm sorry. His brother actually turned him in. His brother's name was Lynn Doyle Cooper. Mm. Um, So they had the right name and lived in Oregon and raised suspicion among their family members because apparently when the brother said something, the FBI was like, hold up. Let me look at you both. (laughs) Like on the off chance that you're going to use your actual name. Right. Um, So they... Their niece, Marla, cooperated with the FBI and talked to media in 2011. Um, She was, like, citing memories from when she was, like, eight years old that she recalled her uncles planning something suspicious just before Thanksgiving 1971 at her grandmother's house in Sisters, Oregon. The two used walkie-talkies and supposedly to go, like, turkey hunting. Mm -hmm. Um, and on Thanksgiving morning, Lynn Doyle Cooper, known to the family as LD, returned to the home bloody and bruised, claiming he had been involved in a car accident. Um, Marla Cooper, who lived in Spokane at the time, said she overheard LD say, quote, we did it. Our money problems are over. We hijacked an airplane. Soon after, the FBI compared the DNA sample to that they have of the hair, the, the hairjacker, of the oh. hairjacker with that of L.D. Cooper's daughter, because um, he, he had already died. Mm-hmm. So there was no match, and the feds dismissed him as a suspect and his mm. brother. So Interesting. Yes. I just think it's really interesting how people come up with these false memories. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Or, like, just fucking blatantly lie. That's so interesting to It's me. very, very wild. Okay, so next we have William Gossett. He was a veteran of the Korean and Vietnam Wars, a survivalist and a parachutist, which I did not know was a word. Mm. Um, so <laughs> I'm just that parachuter. Yeah, like, bitch jumps out of, pl- parachute, or out of planes. He jumps out of parachutes. <laughs> yeah, he jumps out of parachutes, too. <laughs> um, so he told his son and a local judge in San Diego that he had committed the 1971 skyjacking which is really funny. Um, he, his son recalls that Gossett was having like an unusual amount of money at Christmas mm-hmm. that year and that Gossett's physical characteristics match the description from eyewitnesses. Um, the FBI took his DNA. It doesn't say if they like processed it or processed it, it or like took it seriously. Mm-hmm. And Gossett died in 2003. Mm-hmm. Now, when he died, Galen Cook, who had been investigating the Cooper case on his own for years, decided that Gossett was most likely D.B. Cooper. And Cook said he had provided Gossett's fingerprints and DNA to the FBI, but the agency said that there was no evidence to link Gossett with the case. I don't understand, again, how people can just think like it's somebody. Yeah, like, oh, it's got to be you. Yeah. 
like and then even after like it's been confirmed that it's not (laughs) (laughs) Um, but it is i know it is it came to me in a dream mm -hmm, mm-hmm mm-hmm so next we have robert not r his last name starts with an r robert w rockstraw which is a whole last name Mm -hmm. rockstraw I think it's Rackstraw, was an early suspect in the case due to a series of letters mailed to the FBI shortly after the hijacking. It always starts with a fucking letter, one of which identified Rackstraw. So according to Rolling Stone, Rackstraw was a, quote, former special forces parachuter, not parachuter, paratrooper, an explosives expert, and a pilot with about 22 different aliases. Holy crap. (laughs) That's so many. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Okay. He was eliminated as a suspect by the FBI in 1979. Quote, his elimination was controversial amongst the investigating agents, and he remained for many the most viable suspect in what remains the only unsolved air piracy in the United States. So... A filmmaker and author, Thomas Colbert, and a team of investigators studied the evidence for years and decided again that Rockstraw was their guy. Mm -hmm. In 2016, Colbert published a book on his theory, The Last Master Outlaw, and produced a documentary on Rockstraw called D.B. Cooper, Case Closed for the History Channel, um, which is where I got a lot of my information. The History Channel was on it. (laughs) Uh, Rackstraw, who lives in California, was approached by reporters in 2017. He neither confirmed nor denied the information, but told reporters to, quote, verify their facts. He then passed away in July 2019. Um, so next, the next theory is what if it were someone who had already been missing for a while? Now, there were no missing persons reported Thanksgiving week in 1971 that fit the description of the hijacker, according to the FBI. Mm -hmm. But what if it were someone who had already been missing for a while? Okay. So in 1969, Robert Richard Lepsey was at a grocery store that he was the manager for Mm -hmm. in Grayling, Michigan, when he disappeared. He left for work and, like, I'm sorry, he left work for lunch Mm-hmm. And was never seen again. Lepsy's car was found a few days later at an airport, unlocked with the keys in the ignition. An investigation revealed some money missing from the store and a man who caught a flight to Mexico. While researching the case 30 years later, Ross Richardson noticed a strange resemblance between Lepsy and a man also known as D.B. Cooper. Um, so... Could he have disappeared twice is the question. <laughs> uh, which I seems like really I mean, I lucky. feel like if you can do it once, you can probably do it twice. That's true. Like, did he know all the other things? I guess he had time to figure it out, right? So. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, okay, so next on the list is John List. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he is best known as a murderer who killed his entire family on November 9th, 1971. The look on Sierra's face right now. <laughs> Cute, real cute. Okay. After shooting his wife, mother, and three children, he fled, assumed a new identity, and was not caught until 1989. Wow. Yeah. Um, some people have speculated that List committed the hijacking when on the run from police. List denied being D.B. Cooper, even as he admitted to the murders, which, like, if you're going to admit to one thing, why not admit to everything? I just feel like if he was on the run for a murder... 
probably not going to commit a hijacking where the FBI mm-hmm. is going to be involved. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, next, we have a, um, a suspect that was already an actual hijacker. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, he later became an actual hijacker. His name is Richard McCoy, which is kind of funny. Um <laughs> So, in April 1972, he commandeered a United Airlines flight with a hand grenade and demanded half a million dollars in four parachutes. After, after a stop for, uh, like, the cash, the mm-hmm. plane took off and McCoy donned a flight suit and jumped out of the plane over Utah. Um, so, he knew of the case. Like, yeah. But was McCoy a copycat, or was he also D.B. Cooper? Hearing the news, one of McCoy's friends alerted authorities that he had bragged about having a foolproof hijack plan. McCoy, a helicopter pilot, skydiver, and veteran, submitted a handwriting sample that matched the notes used by the hijacker, hijacker, and he was convicted and sentenced to 45 years. Two years later, McCoy escaped from Lewisburg federal penitentiary and he was killed in a shootout with police when they located him three months later we're not done you the look on your face we're not done <laughs> um so it that to me yeah seems plausible okay because like he are he committed the same plan yeah afterwards in 72, mm-hmm. and this happened in 71, right. and I feel like if he, this isn't, this isn't my, that's, he's not my top suspect, Okay. but like, if he, if it worked once, why not try it again, you know? Yeah. And he didn't get all of his money. Yeah, because the second time he asked for half a million, so. Uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, so next we have, um, William. I feel like hand grenade. That's, like, is so much more, like, why would you say bomb and then you would go for hand grenade? Yeah, that's why he's not my top one. Okay, anyway, sorry. Okay, now this this one's a bit twisty and turny, so you okay. got to stick with me, okay? Okay. So the next suspect we have is William J. Smith, and was he was never an FBI suspect on the case, but in 2018, an anonymous military data analyst identified him as a hijacker. Uh, the suspicion, the suspicion, the, the suspicion came through a twisted route. In 1985, Alex Gunther wrote a book called D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened. Mm-hmm. If you cannot tell, there are a lot of books and mm-hmm. documentaries and movies and uh, pop culture about this. Um, in it, he claimed that a man named Dan LeClaire confessed to being D.B. Cooper. The book was dismissed as unreliable, so... Um, the anonymous data analyst found LeClaire, who died in 1990, became more intrigued by LeClaire's friend through that. Mm-hmm. Um, Will, William Smith, not Will Smith. Um, Will Smith is a hijacker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. <laughs> who closely re- like resembled the illustration of Cooper. He believes that Smith was the hijacker and borrowed LeClaire's life story, or like LeClaire confessed... Um, to a crime his friend committed. Mm-hmm. Um, there is no evidence linking either man to the crime, though. They're just talking shit. Yeah, just talking shit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, now, 
Now we have Walter. Okay, Walter. Walter R. Recca was a paratrooper and claimed that he had been a spy. Um, Carl Lauren published a book in 2020 about his friend Recca, according to D.B. Cooper and me, a criminal, a spy, my best friend. Okay. Yeah. Recca admitted to Lauren that he was the missing hijacker. Recca supposedly taped a confession several years before he died and swore Lauren to keep his secret until after his death. In those years, Lauren was never considered a suspect by the FBI. Okay. Again, dismissed it. <laughs> um, so, now... I'm sure there was, like, somebody who was, like, assigned to all the... Um, all of the D.B. Cooper possibilities. Yeah, and just, like, over it. Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. Like, people's... Like, it's been how many years? 71? 50. 50 years? Yeah. Holy shit. Like, that's somebody's... That's two people's careers, at least. Yeah. Like, if they spend, like, 20, 20 years with the yeah. Bureau... Yeah, some poor, uh, some poor homeboy or homegirl is stuck in this. <laughs> oh my gosh, she's—they've already been in there for ten years. Yeah. Oh God. Okay, we're sorry. Anyway, so that is all of the suspects, mm-hmm. and they're not even really suspects anymore because yeah. they've all been dismissed by the FBI. <laughs> um, now Cooper was not the first attempt to like, like. Uh, try air piracy for personal gain. Mm-hmm. In early November 1971, for example, a Canadian man named Paul Joseph Sinney hijacked Air Canada DC-8 over Montana but was overpowered by the crew when he put his shotgun like to strap on. Like, he put his shotgun down to strap on his parachute. Oh, okay. Which is rule number one, don't let go of your gun. <laughs> what? Okay. Um, that's so dumb. No. Criminals are dumb. Uh, <laughs> Thank goodness. Yeah, so Cooper's apparent success inspired a flurry of imitators, mostly during 1972. Oh, jeez. Are you ready for this? Are, are you ready to hear this, no. dear? Fifteen hijackings similar to Cooper's, all unsuccessful, were attempted in 1972. Wow. Yeah. So, with the advent of universal luggage searches in 1973, the general incidence of hijackings dropped dramatically. There were no further notable Cooper imitators until July 11, 1980, when Glenn K. Tripp seized Northwest Flight 608 at Seattle-Tacoma Airport, Mm. demanding $600,000, two parachutes, and the assassination of his boss. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. <laughs> little, just a little ask. You know, nothing big. Nothing major. Like. What? <laughs> also, I need you to kill a guy. Like. <laughs> I'm just going to oh add the God. money in for my, for my peace of mind. But really, what I want you to do okay. is get rid of my boss. Here's, here's the best thing. Are you ready? Yeah. Because I honestly have never been more proud of a woman than what I'm about to say right now. A quick-thinking flight attendant secretly drugged Tripp's alcoholic beverage with Valium. (laughs) (laughs) After a 10-hour standoff, um, during which Tripp reduced his demands to three cheeseburgers, a ground vehicle in which to escape, he was apprehended. Oh, my goodness. 
But on January 21st, 1983, while still on probation, he hijacked the same Northwest flight. Like, this guy again. This time en route, he demanded to be flown to Afghanistan, and when the plane landed in Portland, he was shot and killed by FBI agents. Oh my goodness. Is that not fucking wild? First of all, I'm pretty sure that plane cannot reach Afghanistan. No. So, what? Mm -mm. So, the case of D.B. Cooper, as I stated, is the only unsolved case of airline hijackings. Uh, while the case is officially terminated, the FBI is willing to examine any concrete evidence towards solving the mystery. However, just knowing that someone must have been Cooper is not what they consider concrete evidence. Mm. As we have stated, <laughs> um, it's very possible we may never know who jumped out of that plane in 1971, yeah. which I think is fucking insane. That's kind of cool, though. It is kind of cool, especially because no one was hurt. Yeah. Like, some CEOs got some money taken out of their pocket. Like, oh, oh, well. well. Yeah. Honestly. Um, but, yeah, this is probably one of my favorite cases I have ever covered, just because of yeah. how fucking wild it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and just just the endless possibilities. Yeah. Because, you know, he probably passed away. By now. You know, he may or, well, may, he may, or may, or may not. May. Yeah. yeah. But, like, it's quite possible that he has, so... We may never, like you said, we may never know. Just going to stick with Loki and call it good. We're just going to go with aliens. (laughs) Basically. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, it's just just wild to me. It's probably, like, one of my favorite things to talk about. Yeah. Um, That's so interesting. Especially right now. Because, like, what was the point of taking the money if you weren't going to use the money? Yeah. I mean, I guess they could have, like... Cleaned it? Yeah. Yeah. So, there is that. But, um... Yeah, that's interesting. Huh. Did they, like, change, like, the specifics of the airplane after that, probably? I have no idea. I don't know that. Yeah. Sorry. Um, I do know that airport security is a lot tighter well, than it was in the 70s. There is that. Apparently because they didn't 9/11 have, happened. <laughs> yeah, they didn't even have baggage. Like, no, they didn't. Security. It was also $20 to get on a fucking <laughs> airplane. Um, I've also never been on an airplane. So there is that, which um, I think is why this, this case fascinates me mm. so much. Because like how many, uh, like, I don't know. It's just, it's, it's I just. I think, well, I guess not back then, but like how many millions of people you board an airplane a day yeah you know yeah it's just really bonkers okay well we hope you guys have a great week we're gonna have a great week because we're leaving for vacation tomorrow Mm -hmm. um sierra needs a vacation i need to get out of the fucking (laughs) house um so uh yeah i can't wait you're gonna come back and you're gonna tell everybody what your very practical birthday present was yep um, I'm going to come back and tell you guys about all my mosquito bites. So, okay. <laughs> um, oops, sorry y'all. But, uh, I feel like that's everything. Oh, we're going to a cool, a couple of cool places that yeah. I might do a story on my, uh, just depending on how much stuff is there. Yeah. And we're going to an abandoned prison. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to an abandoned castle. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I feel like I think that's everything. Kayaking. 
always kayaking, it feels like. Um, all right, well, we got to finish packing. So, Sierra, plug the things. Okay, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Paranormal Podcast. Do it. Um, tell your friends. The little hand gesture. The little hand gesture? <laughs> oh, my God. I can definitely tell that my pain medicine has kicked in because I am honestly just, like, floating along. Okay, <laughs> riding the wave. I really am right now. Right now I'm riding the tramadol wave. <laughs> All right, so Facebook, Instagram, you guys got that. Paranormal Podcast, do it. We, we dare you. Yeah, um, you can email us if you would like. You can, you can email us. Paranormalpodcast at gmail.com um, or send us a note on our website, paranormalpodcast.com. Um, yeah, because I'm really tired of getting the spam ones. Boostering, engagement. I'm like, bitch, what if I don't want to? <laughs> but anyways, you can you can send us a message on there. Check out the blog. Has more information about the cases, little like photos that we put up there. And I try really hard to find the photos, so please just go look at them for heaven's <laughs> sake. Um, she does a great job at finding photos. Um, especially because I'm like, I got to show you this picture. And then I forget to show her this picture mm-hmm. every time, every single time. So hopefully it's the right ones. Also <laughs> on the website. Yes. We have personal resources. Yes. Um, they are there for you guys. They're are not connected to us in any sort of way. If you guys are having a mental health crisis, if you are having a domestic crisis, if you are having any kind of thing that you feel like you need to talk to somebody, they are on the website. We also still have the um, Asian and Pacific Islander mm-hmm. information up there. Um, we Mental health really matters. Um, I have made the decision to go on anti-anxiety medicine, um, and I am not even a weekend yet, so we'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I've talked about my anxiety on here before. Um, I'm a very anxious person, um, if y'all can't tell. <laughs> uh, so I, it's honestly... Um, it's something that I've really thought about and I recommend talking to someone, even just like talk therapy. Cause mm-hmm. I, I mean, I go to therapy. Yeah. I'm not ashamed of that shit. And my homegirl's named Renella. I mm-hmm. love her. Um, but like, yeah, y'all mental health is really, really important. We love you guys and we want you guys to have a good mental state. Um, I'm trying to get mine better. I mean, I've been home for six months now and mm-hmm. it gets a little cagey up here. Yeah. Um, so please, if you guys are having any kind of, um, any kind of problem, there are resources, there are people that care about you. We care about you and we don't even know you and we like you. (laughs) And that's saying a lot because I don't like most people. (laughs) Um, what else do we have? We have the snail mail. Sierra, what's the address for snail mail? Uh, PO box 1416. Monroe, North Carolina, 28111. That's three ones. Three ones. I got it right this time. Yay. Um, We also have the wonderful Patreon. Mm -hmm. Um, We have some really cool stuff coming on there. Uh, We just released some really cool stuff on there. So if you guys are interested on that and that, it's Paranorm Podcast at patreon.com. Um, and if you guys can't donate monetarily, we have just like share, just share about our podcast. We had one of our highest download days this past month, um, in June. And it just, honestly, every time I see that kind of thing, it just makes me really happy. Mm-hmm. We appreciate you guys sharing our podcast and we cannot wait to see what this next year holds. Cause this is our, our, um, first episode in the second year. Yeah. So that's really fucking wild guys. All right. I'm done being mushy. Um, we got to go clean out Sierra's car. So bye, bye. everyone. Bye.